the FDA authorizing its first next-generation sequencing-based testing, Mark Zuckerberg selling up to 13 billions of dollars of Facebook stocks to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, 23andMe hitting the streets with their new pop-up event in New York, and the Human Cell Atlas Project, CRISPR. All of these are things you've probably come across the news. Today on Healthcare Focus, we look at precision medicine. First, we'll be diving into the different applications and the general implications of precision medicine for the general field of medicine. And we'll then dig a little bit deeper, finding the challenges that are associated to it. We're looking at it from three angles, the medical community, the pharma, and the government. I'm Karina paris your host, and you're listening to Healthcare Focus. To really understand the hype around precision medicine, you have to look at it from the lens of medical technologies. So right now, the biggest bulk of our healthcare expenditure comes from supportive therapies. And when we talk about supportive therapies, we look at uh, um, conditions like Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis. There are things we don't really fully understand. We don't know how to treat it. We don't have the full technology to really back up um, a treatment that could cure it. And so it ends up being... um, this, this mindset where we try to make lives better, we try to let people live longer, but essentially they're going to live with that condition and perhaps we might be able to alleviate some of the symptoms as the, the condition progresses. Many therapies have been moving towards the second stage, which we call halfway technology. So think of cancer, for example. What we could do is we can minimize it. We can sometimes treat it, but not completely and not consistently, and we don't know how to prevent it. Where there's really a breakthrough that uh, happens when you look at any kind of condition or illness or disease is when we move into what we call the decisive technology of modern medicine. So polio eradication is really a great poster child for this. Um, It's the kind of medicine you get when you know what causes a disease and when you have the technology in place to treat it. So either preventively or uh, once it does attack the body. And that's the promise of precision medicine. It's to move into that third category and to be able to consistently beat the disease. Three different perspectives we're going to look at today, medical community, pharma, and government, starting with the medical community. So what are the challenges that we encounter when we look at the physician adoption of precision medicine? The first thing to mention is that we're not quite there yet. And this is important to mention because there's a lot of talk about it, especially in the research and scientific community in the pharma. And the reality is that we're not ready to, to fully adopt it in the medical sphere Um you know, in the current system as it exists. So the, the first issue under this has to do with the cost. The reason we're so optimistic is because the quality of the diagnosis really is going up. And uh, that's largely due to drivers like the computing power that has been you know, significantly increasing uh, over the past years. But at the same time, the, the cost itself is not the cost of production because that has been going down. The first time that they actually sequenced the genome, it took about $100 million. It took a year and many machines. By 2007, we're looking at $1 million, one single machine, three years. Um, the latest development we've seen was one hour uh, to map this and under $1,000 for the genome. What we're expecting things to stabilize at um, in the short run is about $100 per genome. So <clears throat> it's definitely becoming accessible and you know cheaper and cheaper to produce it. But the point of this is that we're not benchmarking it to itself. <laughs> and as it, it's evolving, we're actually trying to benchmark this to um, the, the, the cost as opposed to the regular diagnosis. And we know that typically 
from the healthcare cost, it's about 2% that goes into the diagnostic bu bucket. But when you think about it, that 2% is really a small investment uh, if done properly in terms of the repercussions it could have because everything else in terms of the um, decisions that are being made for a patient all revolve around that initial diagnosis. And here's the, the challenge is that typically in order to get uh, funding for uh, from the reimbursement system, you need to, de to demonstrate that the cost of something you're producing is going down and that the outcome is being improved. And that typically works, you know, in, in the, the system we have with the clinical trials and so on that we have. But when you're looking at it as an ecosystem, you realize it's, it's slightly different because the cost to properly diagnose that using precision medicine is certainly going to go up. It will be much more costly per person to find that correct diagnosis. And the repercussions are not necessarily shown in that bucket, right? It may be that later down the road, you have lower hospitalization costs. Um, you might have better outcomes in terms of surgery outcomes um, or, or just having less medicines you need to, to try before you actually find the one that really works for your patient. And in the current way in which the, the reimbursement and the, the insurance system functions, it's really hard to quantify and show how the precision medicine diagnosis ends up superior and saving costs in other um, areas. And it's hard to bill in those senses because it, it's not... Um, it's across pillars. It's not self-sustaining in that one area. So that's definitely one of the big challenges. All right, the second big problem that we have here in terms of um, adoption in the by physicians is that you're looking at DNA sharing. And as soon as you mention DNA sharing, you, you touch on patient confidentiality. You realize that the, the value that this system has is really if only if there's a lot of data that goes into the system because precision medicine with just one person won't at all show you the trends and the patterns and so depending on where the data collection happens and where this analysis happens if you're looking at hospitals as active stakeholders that actually do process this info and gather it and analyze it and gain insights from it then you're touching on a very uh, difficult topic which is the privacy of the data the Privacy of the patient is really guaranteed by a lot of different laws, the settled laws. And typically what you end up doing when you do studies in the medical field is that you take out the notions that make it possible to identify someone from the study. But with DNA sequencing, it's almost impossible to guarantee that you won't trace back the person because it is so specific to someone and you can't anonymize it and just make a big bucket out of it because that's the very point of it is you're looking at very specific sequences that you can trace back um, in that specific order. So you definitely have a, a concern there in terms of how we handle that data. And the, the second aspect of it is even if this was cleared and people were okay with this and the laws uh, enabled you to do it, there's a notion of the data itself won't really tell you much without collecting extra data. And that's the data of following up on the different uh, diagnoses and on the different treatments and how effective they were. And that's data that's entered in a medical record system by a doctor 
who may have a certain way of phrasing things and that may be a different way than a colleague and so when you end up with different descriptors and, and synonyms in the system it's very hard for a machine to gain insight and see the parallels just because the nomenclature is so different from one person to another if you push it even further when you look at the reality the context in which they're using these tools sometimes uh, a doctor it runs from from one patient to another they may not have a lot of time to input it so they might use abbreviation and the shorthand really is dependent on each doctor so even solutions like snowmed that tries to bring together a common vocabulary or see patterns and and be able to correlate them is you know gonna have a limit in the sense that some people if they're using shorthand that even will go under the, the radar so that's the second challenge of in terms of data capture and making sense of the data so that you can really supplement the knowledge that you get from just the sequencing to looking really at the impact of treatment by the physicians a third point that may be worth mentioning it's perhaps a, a more minor point because that's really normal in any adoption curve is that a third of the doctors self uh, reported that they don't actually understand what um, precision medicine is does how it works and that's very normal because it hasn't really become mainstream yet but it's interesting to, to point out because for a system to be adopted the, the people who are primary caregivers <laughs> should uh, be able to understand it and adopt it and be sold on it before it really becomes something used um, on a day-to-day -day basis. From the pharmaceutical standpoint, there's a couple of challenges that also emerge and they're very distinct from what we've seen with physicians. The first one is that um, currently on the market there are already more than 140 drugs in the US that have to do with genetic information in their actual label. But the problem is for most people, even if you do go to a doctor or a counter and you're trying to access these kind of medicines, you don't personally know if you have that genome. So even if the, the research is there, we don't have the data on the the um, population side that really helps consumers access those drugs that may be the best fit for them. So that's a first concern. Um, the next two concerns have a lot to do with the financial side of the equation. So the whole goal of pharma uh, when it comes to precision medicine is that they want to be able to find the, what they call the high responding patients in the population for a targeted drug. The idea being that, for example, if you take something like asthma, the symptoms are all the same for all types of asthma. So you look at asthma and you say, okay, well, there's a couple of drugs we know on the market that could help the, the patient, but we don't know which of them is really efficient because we don't know in his particular case what the cause is. And so there's not really one big thing called asthma. There's many little types of asthma and each one can be treated in very distinct ways. So being able to target those subpopulations can become more efficient and save costs on the long run because you only try one medicine, there's less um, damage that could be done over time as you're waiting to find the right one. So it, it looks like a fairly good business case, right? But to develop these things, it costs a lot more. And as we know, the clinical trials are very expensive and they're very long. And so what the FDA has been doing lately is designating what they call the fast track. So if you can demonstrate that your um, medicine is something that is highly needed and that could truly impact lives in a very significant way, they will work with you in adaptive clinical trials where they'll help you design the trial so that by the time you end uh, with your results, you're ready to go on the market and it's, you know, you're kind of working and collaborating together so that you innovate not just your product, but also the way in which you're testing. Um, 
on that second uh, dimension here, we're looking at the fact that the patent itself, once you do get out of uh, these uh, clinical trials and they're successful and you go on the market, they typically have been given um, in terms of identifying an illness and a drug that you know go hand in hand. And nowadays, we're looking at something slightly different, which the policy and the legal system isn't really set up for. And that's being able to associate a drug to a specific diagnostic. Um, or to be able to look at a drug and a specific genome sequence. And so that is going to require some legislation changes in order to be able to see how do we apply patents to this and what does it mean. Um, the last point that is really a challenge for pharmaceuticals is that it, it's if you use the current system, you might risk the safety of patients. And here's why. When you're looking at uh, proving the efficacy, efficacy of a product, you look at, okay, does it solve the problem? And traditionally, this was the barrier, right? Like if it did or didn't and you have control groups, that's how you determine that the, the drug was really ready to be released on the market. But now the problem is that typically because they're so targeted, they will outperform um, many other alternatives on the market or the control groups, obviously. And they may end up even being what they call having super efficacy. So that means if you're trying to increase, you know, a certain hormone production or something in the body of the person, they might actually go even overboard and produce in surplus even more than what you've expected. So th there's definitely not a concern in regards to efficacy. That seems to work with a lot of the tests being done with precision medicine. What does happen though is that you're really playing in unknown territory and you might be touching on a lot of different things that you wouldn't traditionally measure. And so the effect um, on the system as a whole and on the longer term have yet to be proven. And that's where it becomes more dangerous for patient safety, because if the, the current ways and practices we have of approving drugs um, only consider you know, the short term, then we might not really know whether uh, a drug is safe or not in the long term and might release accidentally things on the market that shouldn't have been released. So there's a push now um, to consider patient safety, maybe helping uh, release you know, approve drugs earlier, but have a longer term follow up that really guarantees that there is no bad consequence down the road. Last perspective we're looking at today is the government perspective. And this becomes really interesting for a number of reasons. Um, different systems will have different roles in which the, the government is in, um, involved, right? Some of them have a very centralized health system where the government is actually a provider or a big subsidizer of the healthcare system as a whole. In other areas, we're looking at governments more as regular uh, regulators. And so they have to look out for things, not just safety in terms of the healthcare system and so on, but also in terms of employing, employment and insurance. And so this makes it that th this discussion is hard to be had at a very global level. It's going to really change uh, with the different geographic areas and the way they're organized. But as a basic principle, we can look at this idea of data sharing and what it means in terms of um, regulation for a government. There there's many dimensions to this. The first one to be mentioned is that there's a lot of uh, different programs on a national level that are being done right now. We're looking at the Genome England project uh, that's really on the clinical side. We're looking at US, France, uh, China that are also looking at mapping the genome for their populations. And this actually may be the most efficient way of going about it because in the current data um, that is being polled, we're having a diversity issue. We're polling about 80% uh, white people and 
you know, 19% of the data actually comes from non-Europeans, and most of them are of Asian descent. And why is this relevant? Well, if you're going to suddenly have a, a medicine that is based on data, and that the data you collected to start with only represents a portion of the population, that means you're now starting to make medicine better for you know the people that you've collected the data from, anyone that's represented by that sample, but you end up making it worse for many other people. And it's not just that they're left out of the equation, it's that if precision medicine gets globally adopted, the biomarkers that you find due to certain um, traits that have to do with your ethnicity, your background, may actually mark something as a pathogen when it's not something that is correlated with an illness just because the sample data was uh, not representative and not inclusive. So that's definitely a challenge in, in terms of data collection. When governments each collect their own data and that it's a little bit more thorough, then you might be able to exchange between governments and have access to data, for example, from Asia or from Africa or from Europe that may be a little bit different from yours, but the sharing of this might help um, customize treatments better for your subpopulations, especially if they're minorities. Obviously, this does come with a lot of challenges. One of them is, well, the notion of privacy, right? Because as we've uh, mentioned, if your government is regulating things uh, in regards not just to healthcare, but also employment opportunities or insurance, there's a real risk of discrimination if this data becomes widely available to third parties. So that's one first concern. And the second uh, big concern has to do more on the technological front. It's how do we actually manage to exchange this big uh, amount of data and in a way that's actually safe. We're looking at blockchain technologies as one way of doing this and Amazon has actually been stepping, you know, dipping their toes into this area. So it's very interesting to follow um, as one possible uh, solution for this. And there, there may be more that come with time. Um, another important area to, to also realize is the data itself, we, we talk about precision medicine as, you know, genomics mainly. And the truth is that if you really do want to take into account everything that factors into the health of someone, then there's a lot of other data points that should be part of the discussion. And we're looking at, you know, lifestyle, how much sleep are you getting? What kind of things are you eating? Um, you know, how much physical activity you're having? Then you can also look at the environment, pollution, um, you know, stress levels, uh, you can look at genetics, of course, in terms of like your lineage, right? So when you're looking at, at it from a more holistic point of view, then you can really start making contextual diagnosis because precision medicine is not just about you in a silo, it's about you and your heritage, but in the context of the city you live in or the kind of lifestyle you're having. And that can come uh, with an extra burden in terms of data collection, especially if it's run by governments. Um, and it, it, it puts the, the patient in the center of a care in a way that it never did before. Because that's something that's very peculiar about the healthcare system right now is that a lot of the, the system revolves around patient-centered care. There's a lot of stakeholders that are involved in the discussion. Um, we look at the payers, we look at the healthcare institutions. But the funny thing is that often the patient is left out of that discussion. And I think for the first time to gather data, not just in terms of the DNA, but in terms of the lifestyle, you might actually need the consent and the active participation of citizens. And so I think that's gonna change perhaps the little dynamics that exist currently in the, in the system and give back some um, importance in terms of the patient taking ownership of his own care. And the rationale behind this will be that, well, I want something that will improve my life and I understand that I need to share some of my data 
for you know greater entities to be able to aggregate them and make sense of them and then you're really asking for a lot of trust a lot of education and so it's not just educating you know the medical community as we mentioned before it's not just changing the policies and regulation um, for the pharma industry but it's also at the population level in terms of citizens making it accessible understood and having a buy-in from their end so that we can gather that data if a society decides to go down that path. Precision medicine, personalized medicine, genomic medicine, targeted treatments, so many different words that all touch on that same topic. You now know it's a very complex landscape and it requires different stakeholders with very unique challenges to figure out how to make things work before this can really become a mainstream adopted technology. As you imagine, a lot of research went into this uh, podcast and we weren't able to quote every single thing um, because that would have been one very long episode, but we did include some show notes for you. So we do invite you to have a listen at the discussions that happen at the World Economic Forum, have a listen at um, the president and CEO of John Hopkins University and Medicine, very interesting thoughts on precision medicine there. Um, and, and just generally follow up with that topic as we expect it to be a more and more um, adopted practice in, in the healthcare field over time. In the meantime, sign up to receive our future episodes. They will be delivered right onto your device. Healthcare Focus is a show where we look at research and at the news in the healthcare sector so that you don't have to. Again, I'm Karina Paraskeev and you've been listening to Healthcare Focus.